I'm Anthony Wong, Program Coordinator of the Institute. I'd like to welcome all of you out on this uh, beautiful Friday evening. Uh, happy holidays uh, for tonight's talk uh, with Professor Nadia Kim on her recently published book, Refusing Death. Uh, the title of this talk is Refusing Death, Asian and Latina Immigrant Women, Activists on Race, Class, and Morality. And her book is based on uh, her research of immigrant women fighting for environmental justice in LA. Uh, professor Nadia Kim is Professor of Asian and Asian American Studies and by courtesy Sociology at Lo Loyola Marymount University. Uh, she previously served as the Thomas Tam Visiting Professor at the CUNY Graduate Center and is an editorial board member of ARI's CUNY Forum publication. Uh, professor Kim's research focuses on U.S. race and citizenship injustices concerning Korean and Asian Americans and South Koreans. Race and nativist Racism in Los Angeles, uh, for example, 1992 LA unrest, uh, immigrant women activists, environmental racism and classicism, and comparative racialization of Latinxes, Asian Americans, and Black Americans. Uh, throughout her work, Professor Kim has approached uh, centers uh, neo imperialism, transnationality, and intersectionality of race, gender, class, and citizenship. Uh, Professor Kim is the author of the multi-award winning Imperial Citizens, Koreans and Race from Seoul to LA, uh, published by Stanford back in 2008. And her most recently published book by Stanford as well, uh, most recently in spring 2021 is Tonight's Refusing Death. And uh, she has organized, uh, long organized on issues on immigrant rights, affirmative action and environmental justice. And her, she and her work has appeared internationally and nationally on NPR, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, Korea Times, and Chronicle of Higher Education, among others. Uh, her most recent talk at the Research Institute on Centering Nativist Racism at the CUNY Graduate Center is available on our website and YouTube channel for you to view afterwards of uh, this lecture. And joining us from the West Coast, please welcome Professor <laughs> Nadia Kim. Thank you so much for being here, especially at a, a difficult time, uh, not just during the week, but um, in terms of the global health crisis. So, uh, you know, I don't take any of this for granted. So thank you so much. Um, let me see here. Um, my presentation um, is f coming from my book, Refusing Death, uh, Immigrant Women in the Fight for Environmental Justice in Los Angeles. And uh, because I have to squeeze what I think are some of the most important parts of the book into 40 minutes, uh, I'm, there's going to be some gaps. And I apologize for that. Um, it's a long book, <laughs> it's, you know, almost 400 pages. So, but of course, uh, feel free to ask in the Q&A. Okay. The first thing I wanted to do is answer the so what question. Okay. Why does this matter? And it matters because one thing that we as uh, we, race scholars or intersectional race scholars underestimate is that there really is no understanding of racism or white supremacy without uh, centering environmental racism. Okay. And, and by the same token, there's no classism without environmental classism. And when we think about the climate crisis, we also have to really think about climate justice, okay, and how environmental racism, environmental classism are um, cornerstones of climate justice. So if we haven't been paying attention yet, then um, I like to quote the R&B theorist Beyonce to say, you know, we got to ring the alarm, okay? All of us have to be paying attention and paying attention to the different dimensions. 
why else does this matter? Because of violence and neglect from neoliberal racial capitalism. And I am going to uh, unpack some of these esoteric terms <laughs> in a moment. Um, but just for brevity here, because of violence and neglect from neoliberal racial capitalism and because of the rise in anti-immigrant nationalism, as many of you are aware, unauthorized uh, immigrants and immigrants rely on grassroots community activism more and more, okay? One of the factors we don't know is that immigrant women of color, including the unauthorized, have been leading many of these community movements. Immigrant-led movements like those for environmental justice are among our most dynamic uh, in our global cities like Los Angeles, New York, etc., uh, these movements are changing the political landscape, but surprisingly, they're relatively unknown. Okay. Oh, sorry. Um, the last point is that we actually cannot grasp the COVID-19 pandemic without grasping environmental racism and classism. And although there hasn't been that much published about this or discussed about this, one of the reasons why communities of color, uh, immigrant communities of color have been disproportionately uh, hurt by COVID-19, not just contraction, but hospitalization and death, is precisely because their bodies tend to already be compromised uh, by um, environmental racism and classism, okay? So the pollution, the contamination, the toxicity has already sickened their bodies, okay? So what is a general research question I'm going to be exploring today? When it comes to environmental justice, sometimes called EJ, how does having unhealthy bodies determine the political boundary lines that immigrants like those I studied, the Asian Latina activists, draw, okay? And what role do race, class, and immigration, and gender have on these political views, identities, and strategies? Now, one of the first things I do want to say is that when you ask these immigrant women uh, and the broader environmental justice movement uh, that I worked with, what are the central causes of, um, you know, the contamination, the disproportionately dirty air, and they'll cite racism and classism. Those are, without a doubt, um, the master causes in their minds. When I bring in gender, I'm bringing it in more to focus on the way that their gendered subjectivities and their intersectional position that involves uh, being women, right, subordinated gender, that that informs their resistance strategies, okay? And it also informs these political boundary lines that I'm interested in uh, knowing more about. So my data and method, I have to go over relatively quickly just because of time, but from 2008, and then again, from 2011 to 13, um, there's a brief break there uh, because of the birth of my first child. I conducted about three and a half years, almost 300 hours of ethnographic participant observation. That meant that I was both assisting, helping, volunteering, co-organizing, uh, wherever it made sense with uh, these community activists uh, and secondarily with the community-based organizations. So this involved everything from taking part in meetings to um, public comments to socials, okay? 
I conducted almost 50 interviews with um, these community-based activists, uh, many of whom were leaders, but who were also members and detached allies of the movement and of the five community-based organizations and three supplementary organizations that most of the activists had some relationship to, okay? Uh, the groups that I studied mostly worked separately. They sometimes uh, worked in, uh, you know, specific uh, moments together as a coalition, but it was mostly separately. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the focus on neighborhoods, their specific neighborhoods where they're located. Uh, it also obviously has to do with resource scarcity and things like that, time scarcity. But the Mexican-American organizations were primarily uh, LABACA, which stands for Long Beach Alliance for Children with Asthma, CPC, Community Partners Council, CFASI, which is Coalition for a Safe Environment. And I worked informally with um, a renowned environmental justice organization called uh, EYCEJ, East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice, and then some smaller community groups uh, named Semillas de Esperanza, uh, Seeds of Hope, and Long uh, Latinos in Action, LIA. The main Asian American, Asian Pacific Islander group uh, that I worked with was a predominantly Filipinx American group called People's Corps. Uh, I'm glad I captured their activism while I did because uh, around the time of Trump's election, they dissolved. And the another main organization that I work with, and mainly with its youth program, was Communities for a Better Environment. That's probably the most well-known uh, organization, not just in California, but in the nation. Uh, and they're a more multiracial staff that services a more multiracial ethnic neighborhoods, um, you know, Asian, Latinx, Black, et cetera. Whereas the groups that I just mentioned earlier tended to focus predominantly on their neighborhoods. So predominantly Mexican-American neighborhoods or People's Corps was focused on Los Angeles and Carson, uh, where there's large Filipinx concentrations, but other, um, you know, concentrations of other ethnics as well. The important thing to point out here, too, is that the Mexican-American communities and therefore, these organizations uh, and activists that serviced them uh, tended to be working class and tended to have a lot of unauthorized immigrants. The um, Philippinex uh, constituency that People's Corps served was more mixed class, so middle class and low income. Okay. Same thing for CBE, more mixed in terms of class makeup. Uh, the third major method I used was documents analysis, and that ranged from um, just just perusing over um, hundreds and hundreds of pages of agendas, flyers, presentations, uh, just to have more of a sense of how the movement was being fought and how it was being framed. So environmental injustice today, sources of pollution. Uh, some of this might be more familiar to you right now because we've been hearing a lot about the supply chain log jam. And right now it's especially acute and people are wringing their hands over whether they're going to get their holiday gifts and their holiday decor in time for Christmas, Hanukkah, et cetera. Um, but in actuality, this supply chain log jam, although it's really bad right now, has been going on for a year and counting. And it's this supply chain and this goods movement that is uh, most harming the immigrants that I studied in LA. So down here on the bottom right, the port of LA and Long Beach 
is uh, the biggest port in North America. It's sometimes called the fifth biggest port in the world. So a lot of the goods that you and I buy in big box stores as we're shopping for the holidays or, you know, when you go buy a car to car dealership or whatnot, it's come through the port of L.A. and Long Beach. These goods uh, are brought on diesel running cargo container ships. Okay. Then the goods are uh, put onto trucks, Mack trucks uh, that also run on diesel. They're placed onto trains that also run on diesel to uh, drive all throughout California, but also the rest of the United States. Uh, And none of this diesel would be possible and no goods would be made without oil refining. And so oil refineries are also abutting these communities of color uh, where many immigrants live. Okay, so the contamination uh, is quite severe and relentless because of the closeness of the oil industry, uh, as well as the the diesel plumes, okay? Uh, Many people don't know that Los Angeles is not just the city of Hollywood or the city of Quartz, it's the city of oil, okay? Just to give you a, a better sense of what the Port of Los Angeles and Long Beach looks like and how gargantuan it is. Um, I just wanted to give you a, a bigger picture, okay? Uh, during the supply chain logjam, what often is happening as well is that uh, there's not enough trucks, right, and truckers, and uh, there's not enough trains and train engineers. And so there's a lot of idling, right? And the idling is also what causes very high rates of um, asthma, other lung diseases, and cancers among this community. Okay. Uh, to orient you to where I'm talking about, many of you are at least familiar with LAX and Los Angeles. Um, And the communities that these um, AAPI and Latinx immigrants live in, uh, AAPI is is Carson, right? And and just outside of Carson, um, Torrance, Los Angeles, et cetera. The um, Latinx immigrants I work with mostly uh, lived in Wilmington and West Long Beach, okay? And you can see here the proximity of the Port of LA and Long Beach uh, to these um, cities and communities. And also remember the oil refineries that are also an industry, various industries um, that need to exist in order to service the goods movement, uh, as well as the oil refineries, such as, um, you know, oil storage, such as plastics manufacturing, such as um, truck washing companies. It's endless. Okay. So one of the first things I wanted to address is the importance of um, emotive or affective power dynamics in this movement, okay? And there has been a lot more discussion in sociology. Uh, you know, it's already existed in uh, ethnic studies and American studies, uh, etc. But one of the things we don't talk about enough in terms of emotions and the way it relates to race, class, gender, et cetera, is how emotive power is deployed from the top down. But this was something that the activists that I talked to centered, right, and was at the center of their politics. Um, And so one of the first examples that they pinpointed to me and that I witnessed as an ethnographer was the way in which regulatory, quote unquote, agencies uh, unleash emotional power or what the activists would consider a form of emotional violence, right? Uh, And 
this is important for me to discuss because it helps me define neoliberalism, right? Um, neoliberalism is this extreme runaway form of um, capitalism and individualism that includes very weak regulation of industry and of banks, Wall Street, et cetera, right? And that's why I have regulatory in commas. Um, it's involved the gutting of the social welfare state, and therefore the hyper-individualism comes from the notion that, you know, individuals in an extreme sense make or break their own destinies, their own lives. They're atomized from the collective, from the public good, from civil society, okay? And uh, you're on your own, right? Uh, it doesn't matter that systems of capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, etc., cetera, uh, cause injustices that, uh, you know, spawn poverty, um, undereducation, over-incarceration, hyper-policing, uh, disproportionate environmental injustice and sickness. It doesn't matter. Okay. Everything is about the individual. So in this broader context, one of the ways in which the regulatory quote unquote agencies are able to justify and normalize their inaction, right? Um, there's stone cold responses when you have immigrant mothers uh, crying at public comments with their asthmatic children by their side, right? Um, their ability to normalize and justify their cozy relationship and their, their favoritism towards industry and for-profit uh, endeavors is the feigning of an ethics of care and concern, okay? So it's state and industry who feign an ethics of care and concern. Uh, and this is one major example of how state and industry have, have co-opted the environmental justice movement. And it's often the women-led environmental justice movements that have emphasized um, the importance, the centrality of an ethics of care and concern, okay? Um, and so in co-opting the movement, they repurpose that language, they repurpose that conceptual framework, um, they humanize state and industry, right, which is effectively dehumanizing these immigrant communities by saying, oh, we're really concerned, you know, we really care uh, about your communities, uh, about your health, uh, you know, we care about the asthma epidemic, we're concerned, right, um, and that's where you get concessions, small minor concessions, you get a little bit of conciliation, things like that, right, but in effect, the status quo remains, okay, so that's one way in which you see a motive power being unleashed from the top down. Another way in which you see it is that they often claim to quote unquote fix a problem that they pretend not to have created. So in my book, I have lots of examples of the industry and states websites, right? The language on their websites or in their reports, um, in their PR that essentially say, you know, um, yes, this environmental problem is going to have to be addressed by uh, consumers being, you know, uh, careful about how and what they consume and changing their lifestyles. Um, it means that asthmatic children are going to have to always have their inhaler by their side. It's, it's very much this, um, this, I guess, erasure, right? Um, 
and, and deliberate disappearance of the very fact that it's state and industry that have caused these, uh, this high rate of uh, contamination and sickness and death in the first place, right? So that's not mentioned ever. Um, and then when there's talk of improvements, right, um, in the air quality or improvements in lower diesel emissions or oil refineries flaring their toxic emissions less, right, um, that, you know, it's because of our regulations, it's because of our due diligence. And so they often take undue credit, okay? So not only do they not uh, admit to claim, um, sorry, causing the problem, but they take undue credit for solving a problem they created, okay? And then the other way in which um, state and industry unleash emotive power from the top down is by creating false choices, okay? And there's lots of examples of this, but the the major one that I wanted to address has to do with um, the mothers and the, the very difficult choices they have to make about schools. So um, one of the unique things about this uh, immigrant-led, women-led movement was that they fused both their effort for environmental justice and clean air with their movement for school reform. Uh, and they blended that. So part of their school reform movement was about making the school a more environmentally healthy site, right? Um, and knowing that, uh, Long Beach Alliance for Children with Asthma remembered that there was a new school that was going to be sited right by the freeway. And automatically, Labaca opposed it, like they always did, and like they assumed the immigrant mothers would, the activists would. But surprisingly, the immigrant mother said, no, actually don't oppose the school because it's within walking distance. Okay. And a lot of these uh, immigrant uh, families don't have cars. Okay. So the need to be able to walk to the school is of utmost importance. So this sets up a false choice, right? Established by state and industry that you either have to, um, not be able to access a school because it's farther away and not walkable, or you have to be, be basically kill yourself slowly by going to a school that's, you know, shrouded in diesel all day long as kids try to study there and exercise there. Okay. Um, these are the false choices of neoliberalism. Now, one of the ways in which I wanted to elaborate uh, on this point about state and industry co-opting the movement uh, that, you know, these women, uh, immigrant women defined and led is by showing how much they care uh, in their language, so much so that they're completely unselfconscious about their glaring contradictions. Okay, so for example, this is what Valero Oil wrote. Valero ranked highest among independent refiners in Newsweek Magazine's 2017 green rankings of top 500 U.S. publicly traded companies for environmental performance. Okay. Um, I don't think the irony is lost on you. Okay. But I like to use the example. This is like McDonald's saying that they ranked in the top health rankings of top 500 uh, companies for health performance. Okay. The fact that this is not even ironic, right, to Valero Oil itself shows how much they've normalized it amongst themselves, okay? Um, the dangers, if we look again at environmental injustices at schools, Suva Elementary is a famous case in Bell Gardens where you see this chrome plating factory, okay, essentially um, just, you know, 
shrouding the school and their playground with contaminants, okay, cancer-causing contaminants. And, um, you know, this chrome planting company had been there uh, for a very long time. And it wasn't until um, teachers started uh, having miscarriages, um, you know, teachers and students started contracting cancer, that um, this student body uh, and the school had to wage this, you know, decades long fight against uh, the chrome planting company to ultimately get it shut down. Um, and to this day, uh, teachers and our students are dying from their time at Suva Elementary. And right now it's been up to about 25 uh, people stricken with cancer, uh, many of whom have died. Okay. So it's not surprising that when you talk to the activists in this fight, that they often center embodiment, right? And I'm not going to be able to talk about this too long today, but I, it's something I have to mention, okay? Um, and so to many of us, we've probably heard something to the extent of racism being embodied, uh, et cetera. But it's different when these activists see it fundamentally as uh, their identity as well. And Johnny is really great at... Um, describing what this means to him. And I'm going to paraphrase uh, his comment, but uh, here he says, environmental justice is not an identity, right? People don't see that as an identity, like being Guatemalteco or Chicano, but to me it is. It has so much to do with where I live, where I grew up in the United States. And he goes on to say, uh, it's an identity to him because he cannot take the community out of his body, right? He can never extricate the community that resides within him. And he's not just talking about the pollution and the sickness within him, but he's also talking about the fact that uh, his culture, uh, his peoplehood, uh, you know, food, language, right? Everything that's mean meaningful to him is in his community and therefore embedded in him, okay? So with identity politics, you know, we often talk about race, class, gender, right? But no one says in environmental justice as an identity politics, but that's what they're trying to get us to see, that the embodiment of racism and classism means that you also have to talk about environmental justice as a political identity, okay? So in this context, how do activists see racism and classism to draw these political lines? Uh, similarly, um, echoing Johnny, who we just heard from, most of the activists drew boundaries around their community as embodying classism or as embodying racism. But one of the very important findings as well of my research is that they also saw um, the boundaries as based on the emotional uh, inequalities that different communities embodied, okay? So I'll be elaborating on this for the rest of the talk. Um, so they're not just talking about physicality, okay? They're talking about emotionality uh, and the injustices in emotional lives um, as the environmental uh, racism and environmental classism, you know, cast into relief for them. The other thing that they base the boundaries they draw between their community and those outside of it, uh, especially those in state and industry, uh, is the fact that they see themselves as practicing a moral citizenship, okay? Citizenship is not to them about voting and passports and being able to run for office uh, or those things, right? Even though uh, those things, you know, they see as important, but they deem citizenship the moral practice 
of the ethics of care, right? Which is taking care of your neighbor, taking care of suffering people, uh, suffering at the hands of the physical and emotional neglect and violence of um, the state and industry, okay? So one way that they often kind of drew this uh, boundary line was to say that they are the healthy wealthy. Those that we're fighting are the white healthy, okay? And those labels, those notions were often undergirded by this notion of their immorality, okay? Um, and by extension, they saw their communities, those that practice moral citizenship, as moral, the other dimension I want to talk about in terms of the political boundary lines that they drew is the mostly Filipino Asian Americans uh, believe that racism was most salient as the cause of all the contamination. And I'm going to be addressing why. The mostly Mexican uh, Latinas uh, deemed classism as most salient in explaining why they were disproportionately polluted on. And um, I'll also be addressing why. Okay. So um, one of the first things uh, that was clear to me in trying to figure out why, um, for example, the Mexican Latina activists focused on classism as the cause, I, I recognize that transnationalism and their transnational um, lens, their transnational experiences were front and center in explaining this, Okay. So uh, a, a really great example comes from Marta, who's an unauthorized Mexican immigrant who worked with CPC in Labaca. And one of the questions I asked her, because it's very common in the environmental uh, justice movement to pinpoint environmental racism as the main cause, because most research has identified it as the main cause, right? That even middle-class communities of color tend to be more disproportionately contaminated than working-class white communities, and so when I brought this up to the Mexican Latinx activists, um, they would reply like this. It's not just because they're Anglo. Over there in Mexico, we're Mexican, and it's the same thing when there's politics. They don't pay attention to us. To put it simply, they're people who are not in a lower class like us. They separate themselves from us, and they don't know the people. And I'm paraphrasing, they live near the mountains and they forget about us, okay? So when I ask her the question about, is it because you're Latino, Latina, and they're Anglo? She's like, no, it's not just because they're Anglo. Over there in Mexico, we're all Mexican and they do the exact same thing to us, okay? And she brings up and invokes class. Another example of the transnational class injustice and them citing it as the cause of environmental injustice um, came from Celia, okay? Um, and this had to do with me asking more broadly about her political involvement, if any, while she was in Mexico, her parents' involvement, if any. And um, the class-centered lens comes out very strongly when I ask about these kinds of politics and any kind of movement participation. So I said, do you know why your parents haven't been interested in changing anything political in Mexico? Because Celia had just told me they weren't. She replied, well, what happens is that where I'm from is a very small town, and there, whoever was the one with the most money would just go and make themselves a leader. But did the person who made the rules, were they a good person who did things with justice? Or, Celia, sometimes, depending on the money, rise, smile. So for her, she uses this to also explain why she doesn't like to get involved in politics in the United States, because she really sees it as a rich person's, rich man's game. Okay. Now. Um, when uh, they talked about classism, 
they talked about it again as embodying um, physical illness, uh, emotional uh, injustice, right? Um, but also embodying the beauty of their community, I should point out. Um, when they thought about embodied classism, they thought about it as kind of drawing the boundary line around who they thought of when they thought of my community. And so this was also interesting for me because pretty much the communities are virtually Mexican Latinx. So I just assumed that when they said my community, they were centering um, the fact that they were all Latinx, predominantly Mexican. And so I asked Lauda, one of the leaders of um, the community mu movement, I said, you know, when you say that, who do you mean? Because I, I started recognizing that I wasn't quite getting it. And uh, Lauda said, no, not only as immigrants, like not only as Latinx immigrants, no, it's low income. I'm not talking about Latinos, Black or other racial ethnic groups who live here when she's referring to my community. In other examples, um, in terms of embodied classism and the injustices that went along with it, um, they were often conceiving of, uh, you know, the state and industry they were fighting, but also, you know, um, any uh, American or citizen who didn't care about their plight or didn't believe their plight um, as being uh, a symptom of the wealthy being healthy not just physically, but emotionally, the wealthy being ignorant and the wealthy being non-empathic. And whenever I write per the women, especially, I'm really pointing out how their own gendered socialization as women who have to care about other people's emotional well-being, um, how to emotionally communicate, um, how to monitor their own emotions, um, how to nurture and care for others, not just families, right? That that is where their positionality as women um intersects with uh, their experience as, uh, you know, immigrants of color, some of whom are unauthorized and low income, okay? So this conceptualization of the healthy wealthy uh, came out when I asked Lauda, again, who really liked President Obama, if she'd ever focused on electoral politics once she, or if she ever um, naturalized. And her response was an emphatic, never. My community is first. It's because the community needs to be educated. We need to include ourselves. I asked, do you feel like President Obama or like the national level of the representatives, do they know local issues? She scoffs, uh, no, they have no idea because they live in places where they don't know anything about the pollution, okay? So uh, again, she was someone who pinpointed it's because of the wealthy, that we experience this, um, the fact that because they're healthy and always, including emotionally, uh, they're ignorant, they're not empathic, they don't have to care about this, they don't know anything about pollution, okay? Uh, what is community to them? Community are low-income people getting together and fighting uh, the fereas, right, the, the rail yards that are contaminating uh, their homes and their children and their schools. The other influences pointing, uh, pinpointing to classism, um, I'm going to go through this relatively quickly, but I think is important, uh, is that these immigrants that came from Mexico were not members of the racially marginalized in Mexico. Uh, they were not indigenous. Uh, they didn't identify as such. Uh, they were not uh, Chinese Mexican, Afro Mexican. Um, they were part of the broader mestizo group from Mexico. Okay. So racial marginalization is something they experience once they get here. 
Uh, race talk in Mexico and in the rest of Latin America, as many of you know, is different from that of the United States. Um, race talk is often shunned um, or is only reserved for uh, egregious cases or the most extreme radical cases. Uh, sometimes those in Latin America who bring up race, especially uh, those uh, minorities and of color, uh, are accused of being racist themselves just for bringing it up. So it's just not um, invoked in the same way as it is in the United States. Okay. There is also the issue of uh, global transnational uh, discourse and movements for immigrant workers' rights, which tends to focus on the class dimension, right, employer uh, versus laborer. Uh, you know, neoliberal corporations versus the laborer. Uh, and so that's also influential. Um, and, you know, another major important factor is that unlike what a lot of these immigrants had hoped for, the United States didn't offer class mobility to them as rapidly or to the same degree that they hoped. Um, you know, the United States wasn't an escape from some you know, dimension of poverty. Um, and there's also major segregation racially uh, in the United States by residents. So uh, these Mexican uh, Latinx immigrants often do not uh, interact with white America as neighbors um, or on a daily basis in their everyday social lives. And so uh, research has found that uh, the more apart people of color are from white America, white suburbia, et cetera, um, the less they invoke racism. Okay. Now, I want to turn to the Asian uh, Asian Pacific Islander ethnic activists who, when you ask them, what is the cause of all this environmental contamination, the main one? They pinpoint environmental racism, not classism. OK, one of the ways this was uh, automatically uh, apparent uh, in a way that contrasted with my interviews and fieldwork with the Latinx activists was they often led with, well, our Filipino community is dumped on. We minorities, we people of color, right? That's what they would lead with. Um, while they never led with, you know, well, it's because we're, uh, we have mixed incomes in our community or some of us are lower income. While they didn't lead with that, uh, we'll talk later about how obviously that interrelates with race and ethnicity. Okay. Uh, one of the other ways that environmental racism uh, was front and center was that the environmental justice activists rarely organize an event, uh, especially the Filipinx activists, without centering Phil Am or Panay Pinoy history and culture in some way, shape or form, uh, even if it was, you know, about, OK, we're opposing, um, you know, Marathon Oil or BP Arco or we're opposing the expansion of the most cancerous freeway in the in in uh, the country, which is the 710, which surprisingly, not surprisingly, is in L.A., right? And so they would always make sure to bring in a celebration, uh, a sort of politics of recognition of Philan Pinoy Pinay culture. And this would happen in the food they served or in the civic awards they would give to, uh, for example, Filipinx veterans or um, Filipinx political leaders or, um, you know, like achievement awards to students, Filipinx students who were doing really well. Another way we saw this was with Larry Itliong Day. Now, Carson, because of the large Filipino concentration, was able to secure from Governor Brown um, a celebration of Larry Itliong Day. And California has uh, followed suit. OK, and for many of you who don't know, Larry Itliong, Philip Veracruz and the other um, Filipinx Manongs were actually the ones who um, pressured and uh basically convinced Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, et cetera, to uh, engage in a massive strike, okay? Uh, 
which led to the boycott, right? Uh, and so in California and national history, the only person that gets credit for that is Cesar Chavez. And of course he was involved, but, um, who are we raised are, uh, Larry Leon, Philip Veracruz, other Manongs, Dolores Huerta, et cetera. Right. And so Larry Leong is someone that the Filipinx Activist Center, because he was also an environmental justice activist. Right. And fighting for the farm workers. Right. The Latinx and, and Filipinx farm workers, because he also um, advocated for organic produce so that the DDT and the other deadly uh, pesticides that were being sprayed all over uh, these immigrant farm workers would no longer kill them, cause their cancer, turn their breast milk orange. Right. Uh, lead to miscarriages and stillborns. Right. So. uh Environmental justice and the labor movements often overlap, and that's something that we need to talk more about as well, because so many uh, people of color, immigrants, the low income experience environmental injustices in these really hazardous workplaces, right? Um, I'm sorry, this is a really long quote. I'm going to read it for you. But this is another way in which the transnational framing, right, not just looking at L.A., not just looking at what happens to these immigrants once they land uh, in the United States is absolutely crucial. And for the Filipinx and for um, uh, other Pacific Islander immigrants, they often pointed to uh, U.S. involvement, U.S. neocolonial intervention, militarization in their um, sending countries right, as why they pinpointed race and racism, okay? So this is an uh, interview with Pia. She is a longstanding leader, uh, not just in People's Corps, but also in uh, a group called FACES, uh, Philippine Action uh, for the uh, Community for the Environment. And so when I was talking to her just about kind of her political background, she said, my dad, he was a union leader. I grew up debating politics. My political position was mainly the student movement in the 70s, fighting Marcos. I was already active with the women's movement in the Philippines in 84. I was setting up Gabriella. That's a renowned NGO that defied Marcos and advocated for women's rights. If you don't know, Gabriela is pretty well known. Right now, because we live in Carson, I'm more interested in the environment because I can feel the impact. The Philippine network pulled out when the U.S. military bases were no longer in the Philippines. That was 92. When they pulled out, we felt that it was necessary to put up an environment group because the human rights had gone hand in hand with the environment issue. I asked, are you saying because the bases had polluted so much? She said, yes. And though we were wanting to do just international or just military issues, we got pulled in because Greenpeace came in and they talked about plastics, that the global north dumps plastics in the Philippines, batteries, pesticides, all the tobacco from here goes over there, right? So you can see here that she is not just um, talking about U.S. Uh, colonialism and neo forms of it uh, in the Philippines, but she's talking about how that opened up uh, colonial uh, and imperialism uh, based on the environment, right? So it's basically imperialist racism committed by the United States by way of uh, hyper-contamination of the Philippines, okay? So for example, the um, Subic Bay, right, is a waterway for uh, Filipinos, and that's been completely contaminated by the military bases just dumping all of their toxins into the water, okay? 
Now, other factors that pinpoint uh, racism, especially among these uh, Filipinx uh, and Pacific Islander activists, was most of them compared to the Mexican immigrants had a much longer tenure in the U.S. They had much more activist experience. They had more English fluency. Okay, um, there were more middle class members among this activist group, and that means they have more frequent, intense engagement of white America, as I talked about. Groups that tend to have uh, more frequent, intense engagement of white America, oftentimes a middle class, oftentimes they invoke racism as uh, the biggest problem. Now, I want to make an important statement that, of course, race matters to the uh, Latinx immigrant activists and, of course, class matters to the AAPI immigrant activists. So just to give you some brief examples, Celia says, it can be because, and when she's saying it can be, she's talking about um, why do they disproportionately contaminate your neighborhoods? Because they might think that immigrants only come to take from the country and not give to the country. So I said, so sometimes do you think it has to do with being Latino or, and Celia says, yes, firmly. Okay. So here, what we're witnessing is that even while the um, predominantly Latina activists decide that it's class inequality, it's classism that explains why they environmentally dump on us, right? That um, they still see uh, class as mediating race, okay? So race is interrelated uh, with class, even if class is the master cause, um, similarly, Cindy is a Samoan American, and she, like most of the uh, AAPI activists, said it's environmental racism. It's racist, right? It's against us uh, communities of color. But at the same time, when I asked her, you know, why she thinks there's this discrimination, this racism, she says America has false images of Samoans as just being uneducated football players. So she's not just concerned about the fact that um uh, Samoans, you know, uh, are football players or that there's a stereotype of them as such, but that they're seen as uneducated. Okay. And she was very, um, uh, vigilant about telling me how uh, highly educated her Samoan family was and other Samoan Americans around her. Very, uh, uh, conscious of the stereotype and notion of, uh, her group as, uh, not educated. Okay. Again, she sees racism as the master injustice here, but racism is mediating class. Okay. So what are the implications of the findings of my study? One of the implications, um, and I say this first point um, very carefully because I'm a race scholar, right? Uh, I've devoted my entire career to studying racism, um, that it's possible that university theorists are a little bit too detached from street scientists, right? Street theorists and, and what goes on uh, on the ground and in the movements and perhaps too detached from their transnational livelihoods and their transnational imaginaries. Okay. Um, because we always talk about race, 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 it's environmental racism, especially in the environmental justice uh, scholarship. But, you know, these Immigrant activists, a good number of them who are at the helm of this uh, really dynamic environmental justice movement in L.A., don't say it's race, right? Um, and rather than talking about this as an issue of right or wrong or, or what's more accurate or not based on empirical data, I think what's most important is to explore why this is, right, and, and why there's a disparity uh, between what uh, university theorists are saying with what uh, street theorists are saying, okay? 
Um, the other implication of my findings is that we need more intern multidisciplinary work. And that was the only way that I came to my findings. Uh, I'm primarily trained as a sociologist, but if I'd only use sociology and the sociological literature um, to uh, study this movement, I would not have come up with um, the findings that I did on uh, the importance, for example, of uh, emotional power, of embodiment, um, the way that overlaps with emotionality, um, you know, issues of morality. I just, that's just not centered, uh, front and center in the environmental justice scholarship or even in the, um, you know, sociology of immigration scholarship. So, um, I do think we need to get beyond our disciplinary silos and really start reading more, uh, of other disciplines work, um, and, and, and really cross pollinate it and really be conversant with one another because I just, you know, it was the activists who inspired me to do that. But once I did it, I just, it was so much richer what I could discover. Uh, and in this way, um, this is a lot, it's a mouthful, but sociology and environmental scholar, justice scholarship need to be more embodied, affective, transnational, empire and citizenship focused, and also needs to center neoliberalism. Okay. Sociology, uh, especially the EJ scholarship within American studies and ethnic studies need to engage one another. And in fact, I've, I've just, um, uh, submitted a volume for review with uh, sociologist Pavan Dingra about this very issue. And we're really excited about the opportunities that can spring from this. Um, in terms of uh, the scholarship, I think across many of these disciplines, I think we're still, we're still too methodologically nationalistic, to borrow Wimmer and Gluck Schiller's term. Um, you know, we still really focus our methods, um, our frameworks, our politics on what's going on in the United States or what's going on over there, but not, not what's going on in both places and how we can understand that transnationally, diasporically, globally. Um, so, for example, I think a really interesting research question moving forward would be, Given the emphasis on class by the Mexican uh, Latina, Latina immigrants in L.A., you know, how might we actually interrogate the class discourse of the poor in Mexico, right? And what commonalities uh, and distinctions there were there, okay? And although do I, I didn't get to talk about this that much, um, these immigrant activists, uh, you know, and inspiring me to look at multi and interdisciplinary scholarship really, um, show us that politics is, is not just about, um, the government or event based movements. Uh, and citizenship is not just about, uh, voting and getting that passport, but that both are about, um, first and, and foremost and fundamentally in ethics of care. Um, and I, I think uh, their intersectional positioning uh, as women of color, as unauthorized, low-income immigrant women of color are precisely what uh, shine a light on that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And I'd be happy to answer questions, uh, engage in any kind of discussion. Don't be shy. If you need clarification on anything, feel free <laughs> to let me know. Uh, just some background work. So uh, what difficulties did you encounter in order to get started with the project in the first place? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, one of the major difficulties, and this was a biggie, <laughs> is that normally you are already involved in the movements you study prior to studying them. 
And the reason I could not do that was because I happened to change jobs and move at the exact time that I started this book. Now, I had been active in uh, political movements in Southern Cal before, long before, um, but those movements were primarily around um, anti-immigrant uh, legislation like Prop 187. I don't know if you guys remember that. I can't believe we're in 2022 right now. It's insane. But <laughs> the 90s to me seem like yesterday. But, you know, Prop 187 basically was California's proposition that was put to the vote, to the public, to essentially um, legalize um withholding uh, public services from undocumented immigrants. So that included um, schooling and healthcare. Okay. And it also legalized the surveillance of what we considered undocumented immigrants by saying the people out there can identify, right. Who they think is unauthorized and then report them. Right. Uh, very similar to um, uh, SB 1070 in uh, uh, Arizona. All right. So um Proposition 187 passed in California, okay? Um, and so there was a lot of organizing before it went up for the vote and then after it was passed. Later, it was deemed unconstitutional. So that was an act, a movement I was very active in. But I was also very active in the... Um, the gutting of affirmative action policies across California by the quote-unquote California Civil Rights Initiative, okay? Um, it was uh, also put up as a proposition for vote 209, and essentially it said we should no longer have affirmative action in uh, education, uh, jobs, and in housing and contracting, okay? So I was very active, again, while that was, uh, you know, prop proposed and then after it actually passed. All right. So when I um, was out of California, I was um, at Michigan for grad school. Then I was um, in Boston um, for my job, my first job. And, you know, then I ended up coming back to California at that time, and I really, really, really wanted to do environmental justice because environmental justice was something I'd always been interested in, uh, but I hadn't really um, partaken in fully. And so I was coming brand new, right? Um, they didn't know me, you know, from Sally on the street, and and that's not the way you're supposed to do it, <laughs> And I really wouldn't recommend that. But I think one of the most important ways in which I was able to gain trust and rapport, which you have to do when you do ethnography, there's no way to do ethnography and ethnographic fieldwork without establishing relationships, mutual respect, trust and rapport, right? Relationships are, are what it, where it's at. And so I, I worked on building that first. You know, I went to events, I listened, I got to understand the struggles, Um and then I, uh, you know, then I, what I did was I asked, like, you know, would you mind if for my research project, I actually studied your movement? Uh, and one of the ways in which I tried to make sure to be more egalitarian and less top down was I said, if there are any specific research questions you have, then I'm willing to do that. Right. It might not match my research question, which it didn't, but I'm willing to take part in both. Right. And that's what's called like, you know, um, participatory research or community based participatory research. Right. Uh, participatory action research. There's different phrases for it. Um, and I think that meant a lot to them. Right. That because they were used to kind of people coming in from the top down, whether it's journalists or professors, you know, and like, I have this agenda and you need to fit it. Right. Um, and I, I didn't 
didn't do that because I've learned from many uh, researchers before me. Um, but the other thing that I think um, surprisingly, um, you know, sort of made them trust me was that I was a fellow mother. Okay. And I, I brought my child into the field. Uh, I had to bring her on a semi-regular basis just because of my partners and my schedules and, um, you know, they were actually really surprised that I was willing to bring a newborn baby into their air. And honestly, it was my privilege that didn't, I didn't realize like how bad it was, you know, cause I didn't have to live in it. Um, but that's what opened up all these conversations that some of which I shared with you just today. Right. Now, did they have some, uh, what degree of apprehension did they have in, in cooperating with you since you were, you know, for, for the uh, Latinas, right. You as a East Asian coming in, wanting to learn about what they're doing in, in their community and et cetera. Uh, how, how did you, how long did it take you mean to get Apprehension, apprehension because I was not Latina or Filipino? Yeah. Like, as an outsider, you know, as you said, like a, a academic coming in, East Asian uh, coming in, uh, they, they're doing their thing. And then you, you're, you're doing your study, research, you know, uh, you know, how, how did you eventually yeah. gain, you know, their, you know, great trust? Yeah, well, I mean... One of the things is, I mean, I'm a fellow immigrant, right? And so that's important to them, right? That, you know, I'm, I'm a fellow immigrant and I'm, I'm not European, right? And so, you know, I'm not white. I mean, the, those things were obviously very, very important to them. But, um, you know, I think honestly that, um, it wasn't necessarily, my East Asian background that they're focused on, especially for the Latina immigrants, because as I told you, they really weren't focused on race as much as they were on class. So if anything, they knew that I had a PhD, I was a professor, they knew I was middle class, you know? Um, and so that was probably a bigger dividing line uh, between us. But you know, I think one of the reasons why they eventually felt more comfortable with me or that, you know, I grew on them, I guess, um, was because they don't just consider people who reside in their community who get sick as members of their community, right? They consider those allies who support them, who are willing to advocate for them, right? Um, people who want to spread the word and spread the knowledge um, so that uh, their cause gets more support, right? And gets more traction. They included those people in my community, right? And so because I served that role, that flattened that class difference uh, between us, right? And it's not like they hadn't worked with middle-class people before. So for example, you know, a lot of the staff for nonprofit organizations or organizations that are similar to nonprofits, they're middle-class, right? They're, they're people that come with masters or PhDs. They live in another part of town, you know? So I wasn't the first, you know, middle class person they were dealing with. And in fact, a lot of those, uh, the, the project managers and some of these nonprofits were white women, right? So, um, you know, so I think because of that, um, we were able to kind of bridge that difference. Now, I do think it helped in the case of the AAPI activists that, you know, I'm a fellow Asian American, you know, even if there is sometimes some question about where do uh, Filipinx and Pacific Islanders fit, right? Um, Sometimes Southeast Asians, where do they fit in the whole Asian American category, the whole label? But um, it did matter because, 
we talked a lot about, you know, examples of like Larry Leong, like the one I described, like, and we talked about it in a, a collective sense, right? That that's part of our Asian American history, you know, um, I could talk about U.S. imperialism, right? It's not just something that happened in Samoa or Guam um, or colonialism in the Philippines, but it happened in South Korea, right? Um, yes, South Korea is, you know, first world today, right? But that doesn't take away from the history of bloodshed, pain, struggle, division, loss, right, um, that attended that. So, you know, those, you know, those were the ways in which um, uh, I think that those divisions were flattened right that that chasm was flattened but but i also just think it was just organizing with them you know just getting out there you know rolling up your sleeves getting your hands dirty um and and just you know doing the work i mean they would even say things like wow like like you put away chairs you know like like they were just, they were just so grateful you know to have somebody who uh helps out right because activism is not just it's not just about the big events. It's not just about the big protests. It's activism is like putting away chairs and feeding people at the meeting and finding that meeting room and taking care of the children so that you can do politics. And that's activism. It's the everyday revolutions, right? What has been the reaction from your subjects uh, after release, after the book has been published and also from some of the uh, <laughs> bad guys that you mentioned inside your book? <laughs> Oh, I don't think the bad guys know about my book. <laughs> if I sold Harry Potter's worth of, of books, then yeah. <laughs> um, but in terms of the uh, community activists themselves, um, they've been thrilled, uh, you know, which I didn't, I wouldn't necessarily anticipate that response, but they've been so happy, you know, because um, they've, they've been wanting so much to get the word out there. I think they feel so erased and, um, uh, rendered invisible, you know, um, that no one really knows about this. Like, let me think of a perfect example, right? D dealing with the supply chain logjam that everyone's talking about right now, right? Where in the newspapers or among the politicians or just, you know, on TV, where do you hear them talking about, wow, this supply chain logjam? Think about all those people of color and immigrants living right next to the ports and the freeways and the rail yards and the oil refineries. Think about how much they're, um, you know, getting sicker and being more exposed to premature death because of this, right? I've not seen that once. It's all about how this is affecting consumers, Right. How this is affecting our holiday shopping, uh, how people have to wait seven months for something to come from Amazon. You know, like, it's like there's no concern or knowledge whatsoever of what these communities of color are suffering and have been suffering for decades. And when I write a book like this, they're thrilled because it's just, you know, They've been trying to get knowledge out there in the various ways that they do, but it's another way, it's a, a form of knowledge that they're not going to partake in, right? They're not going to write a research book, you know? Um, and so, uh, it's been really sweet. Like CBE wanted to have a formal party, uh, like a book party for my book, but they've been so uh, resource strapped and time strapped that they can't get to it. But, you know, we probably won't have it, but I just thought that was so kind of them, you know, to want to do that. And then, um, um, you know, some of the other activists from the other organizations, um, they've asked me for extra copies of the book so they can disseminate. Um, they've been disseminating it to the Filipino ethnic media. Right. So that's, you know, like I didn't anticipate that at all. So that's been wonderful um, to witness and see. Yeah. 
Well, in terms of uh, the folks who are living close to these refineries, uh, what measures are they taking in order to just preserve whatever health they're able to preserve? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, one of the things that they're doing is that they often, um, so remember when I was talking about fighting for school reform as well? So one of the foci of their movement is to not allow cars to idle in front of the school. They have to be a certain distance away. And so that means like having to make extra provisions for children crossing, right? Um, and sometimes that's difficult. I mean, all these things that middle-class areas take for granted, right? Is that they don't always have a crosswalk guard, right? I remember being so surprised in one of the interviews, you know, this woman, um, you know, um, Anais, I think she, she was like, we don't even have crosswalk guards. Right. And I'm like, that is insane. Right. Like that is such a danger. Right. Little children. Right. At elementary schools, crossing streets. And so that requires, you know, finding resources, monies, you know, advocating for crosswalk guards. And um, one of the other things that they were doing was focusing on mental health in the schools because there was a recognition that these children not being able to exercise and just run around outside as much as in cleaner communities, um, having to deal with explosions and flaring and, and the, and the noxious smells, right. From nearby polluting facilities means that they often have headaches. They, they can't concentrate. They can't interact as much socially. And so a lot of the immigrant, um, activists, they also were highly active in, um, instituting uh, mental health counseling and mental health programs um, into these schools. And in fact, even being mental health kind of informal counselors themselves. Um, so, uh, you know, racism is environmental racism, right? And so they're dealing with that as well as dealing with the kind of general racism they're dealing with in society. You know, when you have all these anti-immigrant movements and, and hatred um, and policies out there, right? Um, and, you know, you have concerns about being able to afford, uh, things, right, um, at school and, and outside. So, you know, that was one of the ways they also tried to kind of deal with health, not just physical health, but mental and emotional health, right? The way they deal with emotional health with each other is they often made sure to have social events, um, you know, where they got together and they just cooked together, right? Cook something healthy. So the theme was also promoting health, right? That we're eating something healthy together, Um and we're also socializing with each other so that we can feel uh, fellowship, sistership, camaraderie, right? The building of trust and relationships, which is so important. Um, and then for physical and emotional health, they would often um, get grants for exercise classes, aerobics, danza azteca, right? All these different ways in which, you know, because they felt so neglected by the state and industry that they foraged and pieced together, cobbled together ways in which they could be healthy uh, themselves, right? And promote health amongst each other mentally and emotionally as well. Now, when they did get sick, well, were they able to afford health care? 
Um, you know what? They could afford healthcare from the low income clinics or the free healthcare clinics um, that uh, are in Long Beach, you know, and, and nearby. So the problem with those is that there are not very many as all, at all, as you can imagine, right? And so uh, they had to rely usually on um, just one or two clinics. Uh, it was often run by the um, local hospitals, right, and local doctors that basically cobbled together funds and did it out of the goodness of their hearts, right? Um, and so uh, they would often use those clinics, but, you know, some of them are able to um, get Medicaid, and, um, you know, get government insurance, right, healthcare insurance. Uh, but the problem with, you know, uh, engaging with the medical industry there was that, um, as you may know, medicine is problematic. The way that we teach doctors in medical schools is problematic because we often teach them about body parts atomized from the rest of the body, right? It's not a holistic way of teaching about medicine, health, wellness in the body. Um, and so when these immigrants would go to a doctor for an asthma attack or asking like what's going on with their breathing or things like that, the doctor would just look at the lungs, right? But the parents, knowing what they know, they'd say, no, it's, you can't just look at the lungs and talk about genetic factors and things like that. We live in completely contaminated communities, right? You need to know the environmental causes of their illness. And the doctor was, would look at them like they were crazy, right? Like it's just not the way medicine is taught or practiced, especially in mainstream medicine, right, uh, which is who they were coming up against, uh, you know, when they were under uh, Medicaid, et cetera, Medi-Cal. So, um, you know, they would, for example, uh, come to the doctor uh, and say their child is obese, right? And um, the doctor would talk about like, you know, oh, food, 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 food. And the immigrant parents would say, you know that my kid is mainly obese because there's nowhere to exercise. They can't exercise in brown air and there's no green space, right? There, there, there's nowhere to go, right? Like you can't act as if this is like a middle-class suburb, you know, and the doctors would be clueless about this, right? So where the reform or the changes more structurally radically need to happen are also in medicine and in public health and in epidemiology, right? Um, everything is involved here, right? In schools, the institution of schooling, right? Um, and so, yeah. So, I mean, in some ways, like these activists are like, they cover all the bases, right? And it's quite stressful for them emotionally as well. I don't see any questions. I think everybody is uh, ready to go out and purchase your book online. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I do. I, I really want to announce that all proceeds, 100% of proceeds, I'm donating to the community-based organizations um, that I worked with. And I think that's so important given that one of the organizations already dissolved because of lack of uh, funding and resources. So you know, when you buy the book, you're actually making a, a donation to uh, a political social justice causes. Now, they didn't dissolve during the pandemic. Is it pandemic related funding that caused them to dissolve? No, it, no, it wasn't. I mean, it was mostly related to the fact that um, and this happens with organizations and with movements. Right. Is that when the leader passes away? It just the ability to kind of hold up the entire organization, um, the ability to fund the entire organization, everybody's incomes, it kind of becomes defunct, right? And 
So that's an important testament for those of you who are involved in social justice movements or involved in, you know, a community-based organizing, you know, it's really important that um, everybody that's involved has the capacity to uh, lead, uh, fundraise, uh, access resources, right? It cannot just be solely uh, within one person, right? Or, you know, basically the responsibility of one person. So, um, yeah, so the executive director died and then they just, you know, they couldn't hold it up. So, um, I mean, if they had like a, uh, if they had a, a reserve of funding, they probably would have been able to, right? Um, and they were able to kind of hang on by, you know, the edge of their nails for a little while, but they just couldn't sustain it after a while. Yeah. Well, uh, their organization lives on in the pages of a book and the work that they've done in the area in Los Angeles. Uh, I want to thank you very much for enlightening us with what's going on over there on the West Coast. <laughs> uh, labor of love for you. I know that when you, when you were here at the Institute uh, as our visiting professor uh, working on this publication. Uh, yes. Thank you very much for capping off our Friday evening lecture series for the fall semester. Uh, you can purchase Professor Kim's book, uh, Refusing Death, <laughs> online at the Stanford University Press website for $28. Uh, there is the other online mar mar marketplace that uh, you mentioned earlier. They also <laughs> have it, but please get it from the Stanford University Press website. Uh, they're both the same price, so you know, the, yes, I appreciate you one. saying that, Anthony. Yeah. yeah. I want to just say really quickly, I should have thanked Ari for their year-long support from 18 to 19 that allowed me to write this book that you saw me write across the hall from you every week. <laughs> I want to thank Anthony and William for their organizing, Joyce Moy. Um, I want to thank those of you who were here at a, you know, difficult time, which is Friday night. <laughs> I'm so grateful. Um, I also want to just underscore that these issues affect New York and New York City as well. You guys have the port of New Jersey, New York, right? Uh, and communities that are nearby there. Uh, there's been good work done on this. Uh, they're suffering disproportionately from asthma, cancer, and lung disease. So I hope that is something that you're interested in exploring um, in your local environs as well. So, Okay. And with that, happy holidays, folks. Uh, remember to be an upstander if you see a fellow person in need. And good night, everyone. Bye-bye. Happy holidays. Happy Bye. Holidays.